Nene, come up here and lead us in a time of prayer. Let's go before God, then we'll open our Bibles. Please pray with me. Father, as we come this morning, God, we anticipate hearing from your word. We anticipate the message that Phil has uh, prepared, that uh, your word and your spirit has guided him in. So uh, open up our hearts and minds as we hear that. And God, as we uh, thought some time back about the different things of heaven, now we're looking at the reality of hell. And God, uh, uh, the cool thing is, is that you have rescued us from that. We have people in the community, our friends, family, that need to hear about what you can do, what you've done uh, through your son Jesus to rescue us from uh, the clutches of hell and the things of the world, Lord, and help us, uh, the ones of us that have already known you and accepted you, to figure out how we can meet people where they're at in our lives, Lord, and and not be judgmental or uh, uh, people that uh, look like we're trying to pick others apart, but that we would help them find what we ourselves have found. God, you can help us do that. So we just ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Deanie. I grew up right in the middle of Tornado Alley. I mean, right in the middle of Tornado Alley. So did my wife. I was born in Wichita, Kansas, and then my dad was transferred to Oklahoma. We spent the first five years of my life in Oklahoma and then moved back to Wichita and stayed there until my junior year of high school. And then we moved 60 miles away to the community of Hutchison, right in the, the middle of that area tornadoes run rampant. I grew up knowing what they were, grew up knowing how to deal with them. So did Tina. We're both very, very, very familiar with the idea of tornadoes. Now, let me share with you how it plays out at times. Some of you are already aware of this. You grew up in some of the same geography, so you know. But in the summer months, when the heat is rising and humidity is rising, the weather gets just right for things to explode in the sky. In Wichita, you can look off to the west and basically see Colorado. That's how flat it is. But we could see the clouds building over the the plains. And these really high clouds would start. And as they would blow in from the west, covering the area where you were at, most of the time when there was a tornado coming, the sky would turn green. You have all these clouds over the top of you, the sky goes green. If there happens to be a wall in the middle of those clouds, you know beyond the shadow of any doubt what you are in for. So adults, oftentimes, when I was growing up, would be inside having watched the weather, and they'd turn on the radio or turn on the TV and see what the weather forecasters had to say. When those clouds were first making their way across the plains, oftentimes we would hear about severe storm warnings coming our way. Well, that meant we could still play outside, do whatever we were doing, even go swimming, didn't have to worry too much about it. It was just a storm warning. When they would upgrade that to a severe thunderstorm warning, things were going to get exciting. Now, those were always fun. I love Midwestern thunderstorms. Love them. Some of you know exactly what those are like as well, and you enjoy them as well. I'm talking about thunderstorms that rattle the windows and at times make you think the house is going to be lifted off its foundation. Those are a great time. But when it goes from that severe thunderstorm warning to a tornado warning, if you're familiar with what can happen... It gets your attention, really does. Those adults that are inside start calling the kids to join them inside. Everybody needs to be where they can get to shelter quickly because tornadoes kill people. They not only rip up the land, 
They destroy property and worse, lives. So once it goes to a tornado warning, typically here's what happens. The women and the children are inside and the men go stand outside. Sounds intelligent, doesn't it? So the men go stand outside and as we got older, we could go join dad and grandpa and other people standing out in the yard watching what was going on until everything really got heated. And then you made your way back inside. Tornado sirens would go off. When the sirens went off, you knew you didn't want to be standing in the front yard. And in really, really bad situations, the police cars would run up and down the roads of the different communities that we lived in with their sirens going and over the loudspeaker telling everybody to get to shelter as quickly as they could because of scenes like this. If this happens, you don't want to be outdoors. You don't want to be standing there. We have a whole series of pictures that represent the devastation behind some of these tornadoes. You've seen them on the news, you've seen them on the internet, and some of you have lived them. For Tina and I, after we would be down in the the basement riding out the storm when the all-clear sound was given, and that would come through the sirens, or more often than not over the TV or the radio, they would tell you that you could come out. One of the first things you wanted to do was go see how bad it was, what's left. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that a tornado came over you, just all the effects of the weather came past you. But if you knew that a tornado had touched down anywhere in the particular area in which you lived, you wanted to go check out the path, see what all it destroyed. We did on a a number of different occasions growing up and even after we were married, we would go and see things just like this. I can remember at one point going to this little community outside of Hutchison, about 10 miles from our house, after we'd spent a lot of time in the basement, actually for a week or so, the tornado had come down and just devastated this one community. So we drove out to see how bad it was. And the owner of Morton Salt had a house there around Hutchison, Kansas. There's huge salt mines. Had this massive house. The tip of the tornado cut right through the house and opened it up like a dollhouse. You could see every room on either side. The tornado had cut a perfect path through it. There were other times, like in Delavan, Kansas, not far from where Tina and I had lived for a while, we went up to see the same thing, the path of the tornado as it had ripped everything up. Sometimes that path could be upward to two miles wide, and it just cleared everything out. People that grow up in that part of the country, people that live in that part of the country, know that this is a reality, and they pay attention. Now, I want you to imagine with me for just a second what it would be like if there were a group of people that said, tornado warnings are a complete waste of time and we should do away with them. And if we get rid of tornado warnings, then tornadoes will go away and they just won't be an issue. Tornado warnings are nothing but manipulation. That's just a way of of getting people to build basements under their house. Because after tornado sirens go off, everybody wants a basement or a cellar. And that's all these things are. They're just a means of manipulating people. So we should do away with them because tornadoes really don't exist. Over and over and over again, they could say the exact same thing. Tornadoes aren't real. We don't need to worry about them. The sirens are just a mess, a way of getting into people's hearts and minds. Let's just get rid of them. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It really sounds ridiculous if you talk to people that grew up where I did around Wichita, Kansas, or Hutchison, Kansas, or Oklahoma City. You talk to anybody that that has history in that part of the country, and they'll tell you, you want those sirens. You want those warnings. You talk to people in Greensburg, Kansas, a little community that just a few years ago was entirely wiped out. The entire town, gone. Every house, every structure, gone. Number of people died in the midst of that tornado. 
Or you talk to people in Joplin, Missouri that just a few years ago had a killer tornado come through there and a number of people lost their lives and the city of Joplin is still, to some extent, recovering from that. Or go back just one year ago in May of 2015 and you talk to people in the state of Texas and Arkansas and Iowa and South Dakota and you ask them if they should get rid of tornado warnings and they'd all tell you you're crazy because people died last year. They not only had their homes ripped up and their land destroyed, but people died in the storms that ravaged the country. Tornado warnings matter. Storm warnings matter. And for anybody that's ever experienced anything similar to this, they would tell you you want them firmly in place. Now, there's a reason I tell you all of this. We're not just talking about weather. Folks have done, in essence, the very thing that we're talking about with hell. The Bible gives us all kinds of warnings. The Bible tells us over and over and over again that hell is a reality and it waits for those that choose to reject God's gift of grace. Yet since the Enlightenment, people have tried to do away with hell and as a result of that, they have stopped sounding any warnings whatsoever. Preachers have stopped preaching on hell. Teachers have stopped teaching on hell. And in our postmodern world, people have said that hell really doesn't exist and therefore we shouldn't be afraid of it. They would downgrade the warnings of hell to nothing more than just a severe storm. That's really all it is. There's going to be some thunder, some lightning, and, and some pretty hard rain, but that's it. You don't have to worry about death. You don't have to worry about total devastation. You don't have to worry about the worst that creation might hold, because that's just not real. Interestingly enough, a lot of people in this postmodern world in the past 60 to 70 years have said that hell used to be something that people needed to talk about. It used to be something that preachers needed to preach about, but not anymore. Now, I've used that term postmodern twice, and I'm sure that you've heard it repeatedly, but maybe you've never really explored what it is. It is the governing element of our society today. Postmodernism teaches that we live in a state of permanent unresolve and perpetual questions. They go on to say, the postmodernists do, that there are many paths of knowledge and many ways to arrive at certain ends. And how you get to where you get really doesn't matter. Postmodernism would teach that if it isn't a reality to you, it's not a reality. Therefore, you don't need to worry about it. Isn't that goofy? But that's postmodernism. There are very few absolutes. And as the postmodernist movement catches more and more steam, they have started to touch more and more areas of reality. Now, there may be certain things that postmodernism is right about, things like architecture. What you like doesn't have to be what I like, so build what you like, and I'll build what I like, and we'll just get along. Postmodern architecture, fine. Postmodern theology is a mess because it doesn't exist. The absolute of eternity, whether that is heaven or hell, you can take to the bank. And as we said a few weeks ago, 74% of the people living in the United States of America believe in heaven, but only 6% would say that they believe in hell because postmodernism has changed that reality for them. But it has never changed the reality. Hell exists. It is real. And we need to pay attention to it. Not only do we need to pay attention to it, we need to sound the alarm. We need to let the warnings be heard so that people have the information they need to make the choices that will literally 
save their lives for eternity. So that's what we're doing right now. I don't want to be one of those preachers that's guilty of not preaching hell. I don't want us to be one of those churches that is guilty of not telling people what the reality is. So we're not going to be that way. Instead, we're going to look at it as uncomfortable as it might be. We're going to look at it and we're going to accept that we have to face it, either in this life or after this life is over. But my friends, I've said to you several times over the course of the past few weeks, when this life is over, it is too late to think about it. There is no changing it. So we have to pay attention today. I want us to start in the positive by looking at what we're really created for so that we can understand why hell is necessary. Go with me to the middle of your Bible, to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 8. David writes these words, Psalm 8. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beast of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right in the middle of that psalm, we actually find the way we were created. Maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. Let me call your attention to it again. Verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now listen, listen closely. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Did you know that when you were created, you were crowned with glory and honor? The book of Genesis would teach us in chapter 1 that we are all created, male and female, we are all created in the image of God. If you spent much time in the church, you, you don't have a, a difficulty embracing that. We are created in the image of God. What's difficult for us is figuring out exactly what that means. So the psalmist would build on that whole idea and help us understand that when you are created in the image of God, you are given a crown of honor and glory. And that crown is very, very similar to the one that Jesus would wear. You are created in His image. Now, here's the way we could break that down. Because you were created in the image of God and you have a crown of glory and honor, it means that there are certain godly attributes that are a part of you. Things like this. You have the ability to reason. You have the power to create. You have within you the ability to experience intimacy and to experience joy. You have an imagination that makes possibilities nearly limitless for us. Wonder and laughter are a part of your life. They are a part of the crown of glory and honor. And then God wraps all of that together with this tremendous bow of love. You have the ability to love. That is a part of the crown of glory and honor. Those are all attributes that are God-given. John Eldridge, in his teaching on Psalm chapter 8, would say that as we get older, the longing for that crown and that glory gets greater. More than likely, it, it grows in intensity because we remember, even if only faintly, what we once were more than we are now. What he means by that, in Eldridge's teaching, 
is that we can remember what it was like to be a child when we wore the crown of glory and honor and nothing had ever taken it from us. Nothing had ever changed that within us. But as we get older, we get further and further away from that crown. We get further and further away from the glory and the honor and we let life destroy that for us. Yet the longing for it is still deeply within us. Eldridge would go on to say that's why women long to be beautiful and men long to be found brave because of the crown of glory and honor. That's all a part of what God has given us. Now, not only do we have the attributes that we just listed tied together with the attribute of love, God has given us something else that is a part of this crown of glory and honor, freedom. He has given us freedom. In the realm of theology, we might refer to that as free will. God has given us the ability to choose. If you boil free will down or this freedom that is God-given, here's what it, it really comes up to. You have been given the ability to choose whether to love God or reject God. That's the freedom that is God-given. That is the freedom that the Lord has blessed us with. Though some people might say it was a curse. And it would beg a question, and it's a good question. Why, if God knows what we are made of, why, if God has already experienced the pain of of rejection from one-third of the angelic realms, and He knows the number of people that will reject the gift of His love, why, why would God give us free will? Why wouldn't he just take that away so that everybody would worship him, so that everybody would love him, so that everybody would end up in heaven, so that everybody would have the hope of eternity in the presence of God? Why did God have to give us this? Ever asked that question? Ever been asked that question? Maybe in your own struggle with sin or somebody else's struggle with sin as they have talked to you, they have said, why do I do the things I'm doing? I don't want to be like this. I don't understand it. Why am I making these choices? God could do something about this. If he is all-powerful, he could take this away from me. Well, I've answered that question a number of times over the course of the last two and a half decades. I don't know that I've always done a good job with it. In fact, sometimes I think I've messed it up pretty bad in helping people understand what free will really is and the way it really works. But I found something a, a number of years ago from Philip Yancey through some of his writings that made a lot of sense to me, and I have used it since. Let me show you what he says. Power can do everything but the most important thing. It cannot control love. In a concentration camp, the guards possess almost unlimited power. By applying force, they can make you renounce your God, curse your family, work without pay, eat human excrement, kill and then bury your closest friend or even your own mother. All this is within their power. Only one thing is not. They cannot force you to love them. This fact may help explain why God sometimes seems shy to use His power. He created us to love Him, but His most impressive displays of miracle, the kind we may secretly long for, do nothing to foster that love. As Douglas John Hall has put it, God's problem is not that God is not able to do certain things. God's problem is that God loves. Love complicates the life of God as it complicates every life. That's why we have free will, because God needs us to choose to love Him. Like every relationship, the choice matters. Every love relationship requires that 
choice. I choose to love you. I choose to be obedient. I choose to honor you. I choose to do the things that you need me to do. I choose. That's why free will is a part of us. That's why that is that attribute that is God-given, that is so difficult for us to wrestle with, yet so intrinsically important, particularly in the realm of eternity. You will either choose heaven, eternity in relationship with God, or hell. Don't be mistaken, like we said last week. It is not enough for us to say, that eternity in hell means eternal separation from God. Eternity in hell means eternal punishment by God. The creator of the universe that reserves the best of all creation for his children has created a place for those that have rejected him as well. Don't ever let anybody convince you that it is anything but that. Don't ever let anybody convince you that hell is this place of just darkness and separation and it's really not going to be that bad. It's going to be that bad. And God's given us a way out, a path out. And it's called grace. That grace is evident through His Son. That grace is evident through Jesus walking out of the grave and overcoming death for us so that we can choose eternity with God. And heaven hangs in the balance, as does hell. My friends, it's a huge mistake as well to say that heaven is the best thing about being a Christian. Heaven is just one of the great things about being a Christian. The rest of it is all relational. The rest of it is all about having a God that walks through life with us, that does life with us, that will never leave us, never forsake us, but He will also welcome us into eternity and stay there with us forever. That's great news. It really is. But still, free will is difficult for people to embrace. It's hard for people to understand. So I want us to take a minute and just look at it in the Bible so that it'll make a little more sense to you. We're going to go through four passages of Scripture. If you are a note taker and a Bible mapper, this is a great thing for you to make sure that you have recorded in your Bible. Bible mapping is very simple. You go to the cover of your Bible and you write in the word free will. Underneath that, you write the first verse that we're going to look at. And again, we're only going to look at four. There are many others. We're just going to look at four today. Then in the margin of your Bible next to that first verse, you write the second verse. And next to that, the third verse, and then the fourth verse, you have a map that will take you all the way through your Bible. So if you're going to try that, write free will in the cover of your Bible on one of the blank pages, and then, not surprisingly, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. This is the first place that free will shows up in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. That's the birthplace of free will right there. God told Adam and Eve, you have the whole garden at your disposal. There's just one tree. You stay away from it. You don't eat from this one. And which one were they drawn to? The one that they were told to stay away from. That's the way free will works. We have a choice. They made the wrong one, and sadly enough, we're still paying the price for that today. They made the wrong choice. A lot of times we do as well. With this gift of free will, a lot of times we make the wrong choice. So now let's go to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 through 28. 
Moses writes these words, but they are God's. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. Now that's free will. God says with this freedom he has given you, you can choose the blessing or the curse. It's up to you. If you will remain faithful and obedient to him and do the things that he has told you to do, then there's a blessing that waits. If you choose to follow your own selfishness, your own desires, and chase these gods that you haven't even met yet, there's a curse waiting. That's free will. And it still works today. Let's go to the New Testament because you might find it easy to say, well, that's just Old Testament teaching. Let's look at the New Testament. We'll go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes these words, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your mouth that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Now look at the the way the structure of that whole teaching comes into play. God uses the word if to drive home a point. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. If you reject, you will be condemned. The if is the important part. That is the free will part of this. And we have to make sure that we embrace that. So now we're going to go to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John writes... Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not out of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. To those that believed, God gave that right. That's free will. Our choice, whether we believe. Our choice, whether we accept. And that's the struggle that people have found forever with free will. God could have just made it so that I had to accept. But remember, because God loves, He couldn't. Because God cares about you, He couldn't. The choice mattered. Now, people mess up this whole idea of free will and freedom by struggling with the idea of whether we are freed from something or freed to something. And that's not just a a battle that we have to deal with within our faith. We deal with it all the time in the realm of freedom. Here's a way I would illustrate that. From the time we are very small, we are wanting to be freed from something. Little babies want to be freed from the crib. They want to be freed from the playpen. They want to be freed from the confines of their room. They want to be freed from the house and the yard with the fence around it. They're always pushing their boundaries. Hopefully, they're also wanting to be freed from their diaper and, well, another discussion. We always want to be freed from something. As we get older, maybe into the teenage years, we want to be freed from the watchful eye of mom and dad, and we believe that the the driver's license is the means by which that is going to happen. My boundaries have gotten much bigger, and now they don't have to know what I'm doing every minute of every day. I don't have to ask permission because I have freedom. I have been freed from their control. In the the years where young adulthood comes into play, whether that is in college or the workforce, we want to be freed from the control of everybody else in our life to make our own choices, whether we succeed or whether we fail. It all hinges on us. We want that freedom. 
And then once we get squarely into the workforce, people start longing for the freedom of retirement so that they no longer have to be controlled by the boss. Always looking for that freedom from something. Well, even in sin, we want to be freed from sin. We just want something to miraculously take it away. But free will says that we are not freed from something, we are freed to something. And what we are freed to is a choice. It is a choice to break patterns, to live for God. It is the choice to direct ourselves through His grace towards the blessing that He has for us. We are not just freed from something, we are freed to something. And the way all of that works is by allowing Jesus into our heart to change who we are. And when that happens, we're freed too, not just freed from. Now, I'll illustrate that for you in kind of a goofy way. We live in northwest Montana, so this illustration is totally okay. Some of the people that listen on the internet might be offended by it, but they're not here, so that's all right too. So here we go. Gun control is one of the goofiest things that anybody has ever put forward. The belief is that if we take all the guns away, the criminals will no longer act like criminals because we have controlled them. So we'll take all the guns away. And all we do in gun control is make honest people honest. That's it. The dishonest people are still going to be dishonest. Every place that has ever tried the idea of gun control has seen nothing but a dismal failure every time because there's never been a heart change among those that need their hearts changed. We believe that by taking all the guns away, we will be freed from violence, not freed to a place where we can change the hearts of the people that need to have their hearts changed. That's the problem. Now, we can apply it in gun control, but we could apply it in everything else in our life, including eternity. If all we believe is in Christ, we have been freed from hell, we have never been freed to heaven. If we believe that all we are ever going to get is freedom from punishment, and that's all we want from God, the odds are our heart has never been changed enough to free us to righteousness. You are freed to making the right choices. There is a big difference between freedom from and freedom to, and that's the stumbling block of free will. But when we embrace it, we can understand it in its entirety and what God has to offer, which is this unbelievable, unthinkable relationship with the creator of the universe. That's free will. God loves you enough to not control you because he can't, because he wants you to love him. That's free will. Does that make sense, church? Just shake your head yes for my benefit, if nothing else. That, it, it's a confusing thing for us to try to explain, but very important for us to get there. And in all of the teaching of that, here's what we discover. We need hell. That is a shocking statement for some people, particularly in postmodern living. We need hell because hell keeps our moral compass where it's supposed to be. The whole idea and prospect of hell keeps us traveling down the paths that we need to travel down. We need hell because hell reminds us that we need God. Why did God not take hell away? Because he knew what we needed. If we remove hell from the equation, if we take that out of theology, then we have taken out our need from God. There's nothing for us to be delivered from or saved unto. We need hell to remind us that we need God. Now, I'm going to say that a little 
little longer and a little louder until some amen start coming out. So here we go. We need hell to remind us that we need God. Amen. Let's try it one more time. We need hell to remind us that we need God. Amen. That's a shocking statement, a hard statement, but it is a true statement. We need hell to remind us that we need God. My wife grew up in Tornado Alley. She grew up in houses with basements. She loves houses with basements. She does not want to live in a house without a basement because she knows the power of the basement. When we'd been married a few years, I was working for the Bible College, and we were living in an old train depot just outside of Council Grove, Kansas. I was traveling quite a bit, and more often than not, I was gone the entire month of June, which is a terrible month for tornadoes in the Midwest. I called home one night and asked Tina what she was doing. She said, I am laying in the bathtub with both of our dogs. Thanks for asking. (laughs) I said, now, why are you laying in the bathtub with the dogs? That doesn't make any sense. She said, because there are tornadoes touching down around us. They're everywhere. The storms are terrible. And this is the only place that I can be. The sirens were going off. She knew enough to go find shelter, to go find safety. So she did. She would have rather been in a basement because it's a lot safer or a cellar, but the house we were living in didn't have one, and so there was no place for her to go. Even when we were moving to Montana, a place that doesn't really struggle with, especially on our side of the divide, tornadoes on a regular basis. When we were moving up here, she said, I want a house with a basement. I know how important it is to her because she grew up having to spend night after night after night in the basement safe. Now, we can laugh about that whole experience today when she was in the bathtub, and I laugh more than she does, mind you, but there's really great teaching in it, great understanding, because when the storms come, it is only those that have found shelter that will be saved. That's the reality. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what He has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. We could easily read that to those who have found shelter in Him. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. They're outside with the storms. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. It's interesting to me that even today, as we would, in a goofy way, talk about people saying, let's get rid of tornado warnings, there probably are some people that would say they're loud and they're obnoxious and And they really are just manipulative. We don't need them, and they would want to get rid of them. They do the same thing about the preaching of hell and the teaching of the Bible about the subject. They want to get rid of it. 
without realizing that in as much as we can't control the weather, all we can do is control the warnings. People have tried forever to figure out ways that they could manipulate weather, but here's the truth. God is God, and He's in control. They've tried the same thing with eternity. If we stop talking about it, it'll just go away, or if we say that there are many paths to heaven and how we get there is all that matters because we're all going to get to the same end anyway, so you take your path, I'll take my path, and hell doesn't matter. We're trying to control the weather again. God is God. Therefore, we need warnings. We need to sound them. We need to make sure that people hear them. But what they really need to hear is where to find shelter. That's the most important part. Let me leave you with this from the book of Psalms. Kind of bookended this message from this powerful book of the Bible. We started with the book of Psalms. We'll close with it. The 91st chapter. Psalm 91. Tell you what, as I'm reading this, we'll just ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now listen to verse 1, just one more time. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. It is in God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, that we find shelter. And that shelter is safe and eternal. It lasts forever. If you have not found your way there, listen to the warning. It's as loud as we can make it. You only have until this life is over and you don't know when that is to make this choice, to get into this shelter. Some of you, I I hate to be the one to tell you this, but some of you are standing out in the yard and the sky is green and the, the sirens are sounding and the time is short before the storm is around you. If you've not made the choice to pay attention to the warnings and get into the shelter of the Most High, you are in dangerous places, disastrous places. You make the right choice. You do what you need to do. God did all the heavy lifting. You just take care of the small little incidentals and you get into the shelter of the Most High.